Chapter Thirteen of Visions and Revisions by John Cooper Powys. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thomas Hardy. With a name suggestive of the purest English origin, Thomas Hardy has become identified with that portion of England where the various race deposits in our national strata are most clear and defined. In Wessex, the traditions of Saxon and Celt, Norman and Dane, Roman and Iberian, have grown side by side into the soil, and all the villages and towns, all the hills and streams of this county, have preserved the rumour of what they have seen. In Celtic legion, the country of the West Saxons is marvellously rich. Camelot and the island of Avalon greet one another across the Somersetshire Vale. And Dorsetshire, Hardy's immediate home, adds the Roman traditions of Casterbridge to tragic memories of King Lear. Tribe by tribe, race by race, as they come and go, leaving their monuments and their names behind, Hardy broods over them, noting their survivals, their lingering footprints, their long decline. In his well-loved Dorchester, we find him pondering, like one of his own spirits of pity and irony, while the moonlight shines on the haunting amphitheatre where the Romans held their games. He devotes much care in noting all those little omens by the way, that make a journey along the highway of Wessex so full of imaginative suggestion. It is the history of the human race itself that holds him with a mesmeric spell. As century after century it unrolls its acts and scenes under the indifferent stars. The continuity of life is his theme, and the long piteous ascent of man. From those queer fossils in the Portland quarries, to what we see today, so palpable, so real, and yet for all his tragic pity, Hardy is a sly and whimsical chronicler. He does not allow one point of the little jest the gods play on us, the little long-drawn-out jest, to lose its sting. With something of a goblin-like alertness he skips here and there, watching those strange scene-shifters at their work. The jewel stops of Hardy's country pipe are cut from the same reed. With the one he challenges the immortals on behalf of humanity. With the other he plays such a shrewd Priapian tune that all the satyrs dance. I sometimes think that only those born and bred in the country can do justice to this great writer. That jewel pipe of his is bewildering to city people. They overemphasize the magnanimity of his art, or they overemphasize its mitching malico. They do not catch the secret of that mingled strain. The same type of cultured foreigner is puzzled by Hardy's self-possession. He ought to commit himself more completely, or he ought not to have committed himself at all. There is something looks to them, so they are tempted to express it like the cloven hoof of a most satirish cunning about his attitude to certain things. This little caustic by-play, for instance, with which he girds at the established order, never denouncing it wholesale like Shelley, or accepting it wholesale like Wordsworth, 
and always with a tang, a dash of gall and wormwood, an impish malice. The truth is, there are two spirits in Hardy, one infinitely sorrowful and tender, and the other whimsical, elfish and malign. The first spirit rises up in stern Promethean revolt against the decrees of Zeus. The second spirit deliberately allies itself in wanton bitter glee with the humorous provocation of humanity by the cruel powers of the air. The psychology of all this is not hard to unravel. The same abnormal sensitiveness that makes him pity the victims of destiny makes him also not unaware of what may be sweet to the palate of the gods in such merry jests. These two tendencies seem to have grown upon him as years went on, and to have become more and more pronounced. Often with artists, the reverse thing happens. Every human being has his own secretive reaction, his own furtive recoil from the queer trap we are all in, his little private method of retaliation, but many writers are most unscrupulously themselves when they are young. The changes and chances of this mortal life mellow them into a more neutral tint. Their revenge upon life grows less personal and more objective as they get older. They become balanced and resigned. They attain the wisdom of Sophocles. The opposite of this has been the history of Hardy's progression. He began with quite harmless, rustic realism, fanciful and quaint. Then came his masterpieces wherein the power and grandeur of a great artist's inspiration fused everything into harmony. At the last, in his third period, we have the exaggeration of all that is most personal in his emotion, intensified to the extreme limit. It is absurd to turn away from these books, books like Jude the Obscure, and the well-beloved. If Hardy had not had such sardonic emotions, such desire to hit back at the great opposeless wills, and such goblin-like glee at the tricks they play us, he would never have been able to write Tess. Against the ways of God to this sweet girl, he raises a hand of terrible revolt, but it is with more than human pity that he lays her down on the altar of sacrifice. But after all, it is in the supreme passages of pure imaginative grandeur that Hardy is greatest. Here he is with Shakespeare, and we forget both Titan and Goblin. How hard it is to exactly put into words what this imaginative grandeur consists of. It is, at any rate, the intensification of our general consciousness of the life drama as a whole. But this under a poetic rather than a scientific light. And yet, with the scientific facts, they also, not without their dramatic significance, indicated and allowed for. It is a clarifying of our mental vision and a heightening of our sensual apprehension. It is a certain withdrawing from the mere personal pull of our own fate into a more rarefied air, where the tragic beauty of life falls into perspective, and beholding the world in a clear mirror, we escape for a moment from the world to live. At such times it is as though, taken up upon a high mountain, 
we see without desire and without despair the kingdom of the world and the glories of them then it is that we feel the very wind of the earth's revolution and the circling hours touch us with a palpable hand as the turmoil of the world grows so distant it is then that we feel at once the greatness of humanity and the littleness of what it strives for we are seized with a shuddering tenderness for man this bewildered animal wrestling in darkness with he knows not what and gazing long and long into this mirror the poignancy of what we behold is strangely softened after all it is something whatever becomes of us to have been conscious of all this it is something to have outwatched arcturus and felt the sweet influence of the pleiades congruous with such a mood is the manner in which while hardy opposes himself to christianity he cannot forget it he cannot cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart it troubles and vexes him it haunts him and his work both gains and suffers he flings jibe after jibe at god but across his anger falls the shadow of the cross how should it not be so all may be permitted but one must not add a feather weight to the wheel that breaks our little ones it is this that separates hardy's work from so much modern fiction that is clever and philosophical but does not satisfy one's imagination all things with hardy even the facts of geology and chemistry are treated with the imaginative clairvoyance that gives them their place in the human comedy and is not christianity itself one of these facts how amazing that such a thing should have appeared at all upon the earth when one reads meredith and his brilliant intellectual cleverness one finds christianity taken for granted and dismissed as hardly relevant to modern topics but hardy is too pagan in the true sense too fascinated with the poetry of life and the essential ritual of life to dismiss any great religion in this way the thing is always with him just as the gothic tower of st peter's church in casterbridge is always with him he may burst into impish fury with its doctrines but like one of those queer demons who peep out from such consecrated places yet never leave them his imagination requires that atmosphere for the same reason in spite of his intellectual realization of the mechanical processes of fate their engine-like dumbness and blindness he is always being driven to personify these ultimate powers to personify them or it as something that takes infernal satisfaction in fooling its luckless creations and provoking them and scourging them to madness hardy's ultimate thought is that the universe is blind and unconscious that it knows not what it does but standing among the graves of those wessex churchyards watching the twisted threads of perverse destiny that plague those hapless hearts under a thousand village roofs it is impossible for him not to long to strike back at this damned system of things that alone is responsible and how can one strike back unless one converts unconscious machinery into a wanton providence where hardy is so incomparably greater than meredith and all his modern followers 
as that in these Wessex novels there is none of that intolerable ethical discussion which obscures the old essential candours of the human situation. The reaction of men and women upon one another in the presence of the solemn and the mocking elements, this will outlast all social readjustments and all ethical reforms. While the sun shines and the moon draws the tides, men and women will ache from jealousy, and the lover will not be the beloved. Long after a quite new set of interesting modern ideas have replaced the present, children will break the hearts of their parents, and parents will break the hearts of their children. Hardy is indignant enough over the ridiculous conventions of society, but he knows that, at the bottom, what we suffer from is the dust out of which we are made. The eternal illusion and disillusion which must drive us on and take us off until the planet's last hour. Hardy's style, at its best, has an imaginative suggestiveness which approaches, though it may not quite reach, the indescribable touch of the Shakespearean tragedies. There is also a quality in it peculiar to himself, threatening and silencing, a thunderous suppression, a formidable reserve, an iron tenacity. Sometimes again, one is reminded of the ancient Roman poets, and not unfrequently, too, of the rhymic incantations of Sir Thomas Brown, that majestic and perverted Latinist. The description, for instance, of Egdon Heath, at the beginning of the return of the native, has a dusky architectural grandeur that is like the portico of an Egyptian temple. The same thing may be noted of that sudden apparition of Stonehenge, as Tess and Angel stumble upon it in their flight through the darkness. One thinks of the words of William Blake, He who does not love form more than colour is a coward, for it is above all form that appeals to Hardy. The iron plough of his implacable style drives pitilessly through the soft flesh of the earth, until it reaches the architectural substructure. Whoever tries to visualise any scene out of the Wessex novels will be forced to see the figures of the persons concerned, silhouetted against a formidable skyline. One sees them, these poor impassioned ones, moving in tragic procession along the edge of the world. And when the procession is over, darkness re-establish itself. The quality that makes Hardy's manner such a refuge from the levities and gravities of the reforming writers is a quality that springs from the soil. The soil has a gift of proportion like nothing else. Things fall into due perspective on Egdon Heath, and among the water meadows of Blackmoor, life is felt as the tribes of men have felt it since the beginning. The modern tendency is to mock at sexual passion and grow grave over social and artistic problems. Hardy eliminates social and artistic problems, and takes nothing seriously, not even God, except the love and the hate of men and women, and the natural elements that are their accomplices. It is for this lack in them, this uneasy levity, over the one thing that really counts, that it is so hard to read many humorous and arresting modern writers except in railway trains and cafes.
they have thought it clever to dispossess the passion of our poor heart of its essential poetry they have not understood that man would sooner suffer the bitterness of death than be deprived of his right to suffer the bitterness of love it must be i suppose that these flippant triflers are so optimistic about their reforms and their ethical ideals and their sanitary projects that to them such things as how the sun rises over shaston and sinks over budmouth such things as what eustachia felt when she walked talking to herself across the blasted heath such things as the mood of henchard when he cursed the day of his birth are mere accidents and irrelevancies by no means germane to the matter well perhaps they are wise to be so hopeful but for the rest of us for whom the world does not seem likely to improve so fast it is an unspeakable relief that there should be at least one writer left interested in the things that interested sophocles and shakespeare and possessed of a style that does not remembering the work of such hands put our generation altogether to shame. End of chapter 13